Hey, everybody, welcome back to Bikes and Big Ideas on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. And once again, we are broadcasting this episode from our home here in the Gunnison Valley of Colorado, and you should start making plans to come ride on our vast network of trails here in Gunnison and Crested Butte. Okay, today our guest is Jen Dice, who is the president and CEO of People for Bikes, which could be the most important organization in the bike world that you might not be all that familiar with. And there is a reason why that might be the case, since you could say that People for Bikes basically serves as the liaison between the bike industry and the United States government. So if you'd like to know more about who it is that is representing us, the bike community, before the government, well, the answer is Jen Dice and the team at People for Bikes. Now, just one thing before we get going, I say to Jen in this conversation that she might be the first lobbyist I've ever met, and that might not quite be true, since I happen to be good friends with Ashley Kornblatt, who also happens to be good friends with Jen. Ashley is terrific. Her work with Public Land Solution is also terrific. And I've included links to my conversation with Ashley about Public Land Solution in the show notes to this episode. And we've also included links to some related conversations that we've had here on Bikes and Big Ideas with Dave Weens, who is the executive director of the International Mountain Bike Association. And then also there's a link to a conversation I had with Dave Ox, where we talk more specifically about issues surrounding trail usage. So you can check out those other conversations later, but right now I am very happy to share with you my conversation with Jen. And while you listen to this, you can head over to peopleforbikes.org to check out their very good website and just learn a bit more about People for Bikes. And so with all of that out of the way, let's get to my conversation with Jen. Here we go. Well, Jen, how are you today and where are you today? I am great, Jonathan. Thanks for having me. I am in Boulder, Colorado, and it's a sunny, gorgeous, great day to ride a bike. Oh, excellent. That's good. Let's just dive right in. For starters, I'd love to just ask, like, tell us a little bit about People for Bikes. What is it that you do there? People for Bikes, we are a national nonprofit, and our mission is to put more people on bikes more often and to make every bike ride better for everyone. And uh, we're a talented team. We've got a great staff of about 30. Most of us are in Colorado. Obviously, with COVID, we're all in our home offices, but we also have a staff in Washington, D.C. and in Benville, Arkansas. And we work every day to get more people on bikes, to show all the joy and fun you can have on a bicycle, any kind of bike. And uh, we work a lot with governments at the federal, state, and local level to lobby for more access, more funding, you know, more great places to ride bikes. So how and when did People for Bikes start? It started about 20 years ago by a lot of the biggest brands in cycling. And they said, you know, we're competing, we're fierce competitors but we are going to put competition aside and form this nonprofit. And at the time it was called bikes belong 
we're going to put competition aside and form this nonprofit to grow the pie for everyone. We know we need a group of people that are advocates lobbying for more and better cycling. And originally, they were really laser focused on Congress and how Congress could write the biggest check possible for bike parks, for single track trails, for connected uh, bike networks in cities. So originally, it started with focusing on the federal government. And there was a lot of success. And the nonprofit gained steam over years. And now we do federal, state, and local advocacy, and we do a host of other programs as well. So about 20 years ago. 20 years ago. And talk about your own involvement with People for Bikes. When did that start? I've been at PFB for about seven years now, and I worked at IMBA for a decade before that. So I just, I had always been a lobbyist by trade. I lobbied for cities and counties and some other groups, and I had fell in love with mountain biking. I signed up for the Leadville 100. This is a long time ago now. This is like back in 2000. I had signed up for the Leadville 100. I did my first mountain bike race. I absolutely fell in love with mountain biking and training and the culture and uh, lobbying at the time. I I, um, I signed up for IMBA. I was just a member. And I saw their booth at Swap and got to talking to their executive director. And he's like, you know, what do you do for a living? And I said, I was a lobbyist. And he said, well, actually, we're hiring a government affairs director. And so I applied for the job, got the job, and then built up IMBA's government affairs program over about the course of a decade. And that same gentleman that hired me at IMBA had moved over to People for Bikes and decided he wanted to do the exact same thing for the entire bike industry. So he hired me to come to People for Bikes and create a government affairs program uh, for the entire bike industry and to represent all of bicycling. So not just mountain biking, but all aspects of cycling. And specifically or primarily within the United States or? We are. We're probably 90% North America. So because most of our members are board members and our concentrated government you know, policy and lobbying is here in the U.S. But uh, a few of our programs have spilled into Europe, into Australia. And- Got it. You know, I was just thinking to myself, you might be the first lobbyist I've ever talked to in my life. Oh, no way. Yeah, there you go. So- now I'm curious, how does someone go down that road? I'm guessing, here's here's the ignorant assumption. I'm assuming you were like a poli-sci major. Yep. Did we start there? Or, or tell me the backstory there. I love that you've asked that about lobbyists, because when you read in the media, or lobbyists have such a bad reputation. Yeah. But think about your audience. Think about what we love, bicycling. There's lobbyists for everything. So no matter what you do, somebody lobbies for the things that you love and the things that you care about every day. And in our case, we've got a big team of lobbyists and advocates for bicycling. So if you don't have a voice in government, Congressman Blumenauer has a great phrase of that. If you don't have a seat at the table, you're on the menu is a great way to say it, that you have to be there to help guide people towards the outcomes you want for your sport or your business or your conservation goals, et cetera. So, and I forgot the second part of your question, Jonathan. Well, I was just curious about your own background and like how you got on this path. I went to grad school at KU in Lawrence, Kansas for public administration. And it was a combination of like nonprofit management and public policy. And I I did a lot of internships, both at state capitals and um, in Washington, D.C. And I loved the process of working through a piece of legislation and then seeing it implemented and the outcomes that happen in society. So I've just always really been interested in state legislative governments and how government works and how citizens can shape um, the outcomes. 
it sounds like you were just like a smarter, more curious kid than I was maybe like, did you have family working in politics at the local level or state level? Like, again, I'm just curious about like, I was playing football and basketball and it sounds like you were like, look at how our legislature works. Yeah, though I was like the geeky captain of the debate team, you know, I, I was on the golf team. So that was like the one sport that I played. I played a lot of golf in high school and college. And, but then moving to Colorado, moved to Summit County, you know, epicenter of mountain biking. My first Colorado boyfriend was a you know huge mountain biker and got me into the sport. And I just absolutely loved every part about it. And, um, just couldn't mountain bike enough and started signing up for events and all my friends mountain biked. And it just, was so much fun to think about taking sort of my professional career of advocacy and lobbying and legislative work into my personal passion of of mountain biking. And so it's been really a fantastic almost 20 years being able to, I joke that sort of like my day job and my night job are the same and that I love bicycling and I get to be a spokesperson for bicycling. Um, That sort of like my passion is now my vocation and being able to get more people riding bikes and change the policies and the culture and the communities behind cycling. By the way, I think it's really fun and kind of interesting to think about, like to use the old metaphor of like when the light bulb turns on or, you know, we flip the switch and like, we see this, um, one, I think like in the world of entrepreneurship, like when somebody that light bulb turns on and they realize they can start making a product or start a company and you get a taste of that. And then you kind of realize like, I can just go make stuff that doesn't exist in the world. And there's a, maybe a similar or analogous light bulb when it comes to politics, whether at the local community level or the national level, right? When you're like, Oh, right. We can actually show up, start advocating for causes that we really care about. You're like, oh, right. That's a thing that can happen. Right. And you sort of get a taste for that and realize we don't just have to sit around passively letting strangers dictate rules, restrictions, the like. Those are just powerful things. And I think that obviously the last year or two, I think at a, at a national level, it's been a cool conversation, a lot of encouragement for people to get out and vote, to get more informed. And I, I do feel like it's, that's felt a bit different maybe than in the last five to 10 years where I think maybe there were a lot of us mountain bikers, bikers, skiers, whatever, who were like, look, politics isn't really my thing. I just kind of want to go ski, man. Like, leave me alone. And like, that's changing, I think. Does that resonate with what you're seeing? Yeah, it's absolutely changing for the better, obviously, because citizens realize the power of their voice, their power of voting, their power of getting involved. And it's even easier to be part of participatory government. So you can write an email, you can send a letter, you can make a phone call, you can hop in a video town hall, um, you can show up at a meeting. There's, there's, scalable from little things that take five minutes to maybe an hour to actually we pre COVID would organize three or four Washington DC fly-ins a year, or we would organize people to go to their state capital in Denver or Sacramento and ask for more and better biking, whatever the specific issue is. So I really think about our nonprofit We're We're not just a, you know, 501 C three or a industry trade association, We're an entrepreneurial nonprofit and we have 30 staff and they are constantly thinking, 
how to evolve our programs to be more effective. And it's whether it's serving bicycling, serving the bike industry, or lobbying governments and elected officials. We're this entrepreneurial nonprofit that we're not satisfied with the status quo, and we're going to go create the kind of policies or change that we want to see in the world. I'm going to ask you a question that I'm going to be very impressed if you actually know the answer, because like I personally can barely remember things from like two days ago. I'm curious, like if you can recall, because you're real busy and doing a lot of stuff. I, I know this about you. When you first got to People for Bikes, like seven years ago, I'm curious when you kind of walked in and you were trying to get a handle on like, what are we doing here? Where is this organization at? Oh my God, they're not addressing these huge issues at all. Or like, wow, these guys are really kind of firing on a lot of cylinders. I just have to try to help level things up here. What was the atmosphere when you first showed up? Tim hired me to create an entire program for the bike industry. And the bike industry prior to that had written a lot of checks to a lot of other nonprofits and decided that they really wanted to sort of take back control of their over the business voice of cycling. And the business voice is a very powerful voice in that we create jobs, we pay taxes, we work on you know bicycle economic development and tourism. So over the course of year of quite a few years working with other partners and specifically working with a lot of leaders in the bike industry, we created this bike industry voice and trade association. We merged with another nonprofit that had been representing suppliers and with their industry experts and our staff political strategists, it's just been a beautiful marriage, if you will. And so we've grown systematically the voice of the bike industry our power and our influence, if you will. We have a long ways to go, but we've systematically gone through and created new programs to make sure that we're growing bike participation, we're growing the government investment in trails and open space and cycling, and we're working on sort of all facets of better, safer, more fun bike infrastructure. Got it. So talk about some of the challenges, if there are maybe some general challenges or general obstacles, what does that look like in your world? I mean, I think many of us probably listening to this conversation now when you're like, we'd like people to be on bikes more and doing that in a safer way and better. Probably you're not going to get a lot of us like, no, 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 that sounds like a terrible, that sounds like a terrible trajectory. So talk to us a little bit about like where the challenges are, where the obstacles or opposition is to what, what it is you're working on. Sure. You know, so it sounds like most of your audience is recreational riders. So wouldn't it be great if you could just ride to your ride so that you didn't always have to get in a car. You don't have to always own a car and have to own a bike rack and head out a long ways away to get on your favorite ride. So our sort of dream and our vision for the country is that you can ride from wherever you live to wherever you want to go, whether that's recreational cycling or whether that's commuting to work or running you know, your kids to school, you name it. So we really think about connected bike networks. We don't think about one trail system here or one bike path there. We think about how do you make sure that you have the seamless, safe, accessible experience, because that's how you're going to get more people riding is if they can just roll out the door and head out for a ride, or it's fine if you have to drive, but if you have to drive hours, you're out, you know, but, but really we're thinking about how do you build trails close to home? And so is the majority of the work you're doing focused on, well, broadly urban 
environments or like really dense urban environments? How would you describe the kind of communities where people for bikes time and energy is most focused? Really, we represent both recreation riding, you know, mountain biking, road biking, and also commuting, transportation, cycling. So we really, we, we definitely represent both. So on the mountain bike side of things, we're part of a lot of co- coalitions for protecting open space, protecting lands near our trails, you know, preventing development, like resource extraction, building and back open space areas. So we also are a big believer in pocket parks, you know, pump tracks and bringing trails to the people. And so the way we do it at the national sort of macro level is we ask Congress to write a really big check every year for the recreational trails program. So if Congress writes a big enough check, that can ripple down to hundreds and even ultimately thousands of projects that are building better trailheads, better trails, better places, um, better bike parks, you name it. So uh, the biggest obstacle really is funding, you know, especially in the last year, the traditional way governments make money has been broken with taxation and all sorts of, you know, with cities being shut down for the last 10 months. So the biggest obstacles moving forward are making sure that cities, counties, states, and the federal government are still setting money aside to maintain the trail systems they have, you know, and build new ones in the future, smart new ones in the future. So that's a huge obstacle on the on-road side of things. Obviously, we want safer places for everybody to ride. So we work on protected bike lanes. We work on reducing speed limits. One of the best, fastest ways you can do to decrease your fatality rate is just slow cars down. And, um, And really, we work with cities on a lot of their city planning so that everybody has a place that you know where the bikes go, you know where people walk and go, you know where cars go. Here's another kind of general question for you. How are we doing overall on this? Like, what is the current ecosystem like? Is it, are you like, we're having a much easier time getting buy-in from all these different stakeholders than we used to? Or is it more like some years it's great and then some new people come into power or just the whole world changes and now it's real difficult again. Like what, what does that look like? I guess in terms of say the friction for working on some of the things you're trying to do. Sure. I am an optimist. You can't be in bike advocacy and not be an optimist. You have to like see this beautiful world that we all want to live in. And we see pieces and parts of it all over the country. And honestly, you know, in all the devastation and um, awful world that we've lived through in the last, you know, 11 months with COVID, the tailwind, the unexpected tailwind is that people are riding bikes in like crazy. We brought millions of new people into the sport. So this unexpected, you never want to say a silver lining in a global pandemic, but this unexpected tailwind we've had of people riding bikes more is, is really exciting. And all of our counters, like our echo counter in cities is up our rails to trails Conservancy Partnership, their counters are up 72% since March. So many more people are riding that now we have demand. We have all millions of more people that have joined the current enthusiasts and they want better, safer, more accessible bike infrastructure. So if anything, we're continuing on this strong upward trajectory because so many communities, especially during stay-at-home orders, realized they needed to give their citizens a place to move and to walk and to bike. There's probably about 200 cities in the United States 
that did something to help their people bike and walk and get outside and open their streets more to community. So for the first time, people really got to look at what the environment was like in their communities when they weren't sort of overrun by cars. And you saw that a lot in all the news about climate, you know, like in LA, they could see, you know, the mountains for the first time in Denver, you know, we didn't have the brown cloud, you know, you saw the crazy pictures in India. So seeing that when global emissions were down 17% during the height of stay at home orders, and I think for the year last year, we were down about like 9%, people are like reimagining their cities, they're reimagining how they move around their cities and their relationship close to home. So we heard so many great stories about people buying a bike for the first time, getting to know their local trails, getting to know their local community, and just seeing things from a different perspective. So we're pretty optimistic, especially when we see the counter numbers, you know, the bike counter numbers, and when we see the retail sales numbers, that we're going to ride this wave for a long time and, and really emerge better than before and with a higher percentage of cyclists than before. I'll go ahead and call it a silver lining for you. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So I'll, I'll take that one. No, I think it's fascinating. And I think like, well, it's the rise and fall of any society, right? Which is like, we make certain technological advancements, quote unquote advancements that certainly let us get around from in a lot of situations, point A to point B faster, right? Because these cars can go, you know, 120 miles an hour. And then it's like, okay, there are certain advantages to that speed. And then we're like, oh, wait, maybe we've kind of moved that pendulum too far, right? And things like a pandemic can help make that clear. I don't know. I, I just think this is the work of like human societies and evolutions and sometimes de-evolutions. I, I will take this as the silver lining of like, oh yeah, like human powered transportation, making that safe, more accessible, encouraging people to do it sucks what it maybe took to get us to this part, but let's make lemonade, you know? Well, we do surveys of our, we do general population surveys and surveys of our 1.4 million members. And every month we're seeing more and more comments about they're forming habits. They're really loving bicycling. They might be now, even though they were new to the sport in the beginning, they're like, okay, I need to buy a few more accessories. I want to make biking a little bit more comfortable. I'm kind of thinking about that next bike over there as well. And interestingly, more and more people are putting it together that when you take a bike for a short trip, you are there is no faster way to immediately decrease your carbon footprint than by taking a bike versus a car for a short trip. So we're, for the first time, really seeing a lot more of these new cyclists saying, yeah, I'm picking my bike because I've been thinking a lot about the environment in the last 11 months. And I am thinking about my community and being more in touch locally. And it feels good to ride around your community versus always having to hop in a car. Yeah. And if you live in a really dense city where you can't find parking ever, turns out there's advantages in that front as well. Time. And our e-bike sales have been absolutely through the roof. It's been completely remarkable. We thought at the beginning of COVID, we understood why sort of entry-level bikes were flying off the shelves. And we, we didn't think that would happen with e-bikes. But even last month, we were up 189%. I mean, e-bike sales are absolutely through the roof in that you can take an e-bike uh, longer distances to run errands, um, to get to the next city next to you. I mean, e-bikes sort of reduce all those barriers where before you're like, ah, eh, it's just a little too far. It might be a little too cold out. I got to haul some stuff. 
you might have just by default hopped in a car. But we're seeing that a lot of people are converting to short trips um, because they love their new e-bike. So I don't know if you've heard, but we have a new president and a new administration. Am I breaking news to you here? Yeah, thank you. I, I appreciate that. <laughs> you're, you're welcome. New Congress, new administration. Got it. And so what does this mean for people for bikes? Are you are you psyched? Are you like, oh, thank God it's over? Or you're like, we've actually been doing great and it, this will be a pretty seamless transition? T- tell us a little bit about that. Sure. Honestly, we were doing great in the last Congress And in this new Congress and the new administration, we're going to do even better. So we couldn't be more excited. The two people they have for the Department of Interior and for the Department of Transportation are both, they believe in conservation, they believe in recreation, they believe in better streets and safer streets and reaching all neighborhoods. And so we're so excited about the direction of the new administration. And there's about a half a dozen bills that we'll be introducing in this new Congress in the next two years to improve recreational cycling, e-bikes, bike commuting. The administration is talking about a civilian conservation corps to be out um, similar to the CCC back in the day that would repair trails and trailheads and public amenities. You've seen in the last 11 months, people are outside in droves, not just biking, but hiking, camping, getting into all these wonderful new outdoor sports. And this new administration and Congress recognizes that. And they know we need to protect our public lands and our recreational assets and keep people outdoors, you know, now and in the future. So we couldn't be more excited and have a pretty big legislative agenda on tap for 2021 and beyond. Speaking of a legislative agenda for 2021 and beyond, I'd love to ask you, I know, you know, you and I have been having some back and forth for going on a month or two now. You have very specifically been sort of doing this planning like all right what in the world should be our focus what are the most important initiatives what's kind of right now stuff versus longer term stuff so i would love to hear where you guys are with respect to all that planning and how things are shaping up sure yeah we just released our 2021 work plan and that sort of is this deep dive into all aspects of our nonprofit and how we're going to make bicycling better at all levels of government. So we will be looking at cities and states and what ballot measures they have, how they're funding recreational trails, how they're connecting bike parks to greenways, really working on the connectivity of everything. Last year on the November ballot, I think we tracked, it was like 28 ballot measures. We tracked 30. We were successful at 28. And it was about $1 billion more for bike projects across the country. So we want to arm local advocates, state advocates, you know, local bike shops that are really trying to make their communities better for bicycling. So we'll continue in 2021 to really think about all levels of government and how we can bring you know, our grassroots network, our 1.4 million members and the bike industry behind these initiatives to push them across the finish line. So that's kind of job number one. We Like we talked about earlier, we're really encouraged by electric bikes, both electric mountain bikes and electric, you know, um, cruiser bikes or commuter bikes, if you will, because we see what's happening in Europe and how widely popular they are. I think last year I read that like 60% of all sales in Germany were electric bikes. You know, they are, we call it the e-bike smile. Whenever you try an e-bike, they are so dang much fun that you get off of it. And you might've sort of been against it before, or like, oh, I don't need it for whatever reason. 
but you get off an electric mountain bike or an electric, you know, commuter bike. And you're like, dang, that was awesome. And I kind of have to have one. (laughs) We're going to be working with utility companies, public health groups, Congress, and what purchase incentives might look like. So you see all the purchase incentives that are out there for electric vehicles. Well, we think e-bikes are a really great mobility solution to get from where you live to where you need to go. And we saw in the last 11 months when people were really leery about getting back in transit and buses uh, because of COVID exposure, obviously transit is critically important. And we're part of coalitions to make sure that that keeps, we keep the funding high there, but we call it sort of like the final mile, like transit is and buses are not in a lot of communities. And a lot of people are forced into um, owning a car to be able to climb a corporate ladder or climb the, a business ladder and to be able to have the kind of access to jobs and education, healthcare, nutrition, you name it. So we think e-bikes could be sort of a good final mile connectivity solution as well. So we're pretty excited about that too. Absolutely. You know, when the big e-mountain bike push was happening, let's say, I don't know, three-ish, four-ish years ago, we were kind of on the side of like, wait, 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 hang on people. And, you know, there was, I think this is just one of those nuanced topics, right? That you get your staunchly opposed people to e-bikes and you have your staunch advocates for them. The biggest thing that we have been saying since we were weighing in on e-mountain bikes in particular is we in this country still have to get clearer on trail access issues. And we just felt like there are a lot of places where it feels like at the time, some of the bike industry was like, everybody ought to be on these e-mountain bikes. And that felt like it was getting pushed ahead a bit quicker than some of the trail access issues, like where we were on that stuff. And so E-commuters, 100%, all in right now. Urban commuters, we're all about that. We just want to see some of the trail access issues get clarified in this country at different places because, I and I'd like to think this is getting better overall, but I, I can't say that I know that for sure. There were places where people just going through with motorized bikes was threatening to close trail access. Yeah. I don't know if we know any of those places. Like I think early on that was everybody's fear. And obviously quite a few of our team came from the mountain bike advocacy world. And the last thing we would want in a million years was to jeopardize any kind of mountain bike access. I think early on, everybody was afraid of that. And that fear has truly not borne out in any way, shape or form. We, we believe in local control. So a local land manager, they, um, we have dedicated public servants that are local land managers that have very specific environmental processes that they go through to decide who should be allowed and who shouldn't be allowed on local trails and what works for user conflict as well. So what we've been pushing for is, of course, more management, um, more local control, and being open to class one electric mountain bikes on places where regular bikes go, because you know we, we need a lot more science for sure. There's only a couple studies out there that say that the impacts are comparable, but really a class one electric bicycle, once you stop pedaling, you lose any sort of boost of power. So you have to be pedaling the whole time. 
And if you're going really quickly, um, if you, if you're a strong writer, which it's pretty hard for me as sort of a weekend warrior, but if I'm going as hard as I possibly can, and it actually, the boost gets me up to 20 miles per hour, then the, the power cuts out. So there's a lot of sort of class one electric bikes are very similar to regular mountain bikes. And we've seen that in the sales electric mountain bikes in the last 11 months, the sales growth has just truly been explosive because I think you originally are nervous about it and you think, oh, what is this thing? And, um, but really it reduces barriers for people. It makes it a lot more fun. Think about the communities we live in, in Colorado, you and Crested Butte, you know, I'm in, I'm in Boulder. It's not easy to become a mountain biker. And that mentality of you have to earn your turns and you have to be able to like go through all the barriers that your predecessors do to be able to enter a sport is ridiculous. Like we need to be welcoming. We need to be inclusive. We need to make it so fun. And I think about my first few years of mountain biking, uh, how many times, you know, in the beginning I hated climbing and now I love it, but you would just sort of, when you're a beginner, you're like, when do I get to go down in Colorado? It's all about climbing. (laughs) And when do I get to go have some fun? You know, this is quite a few years ago. So I just think electric bikes make it so much more fun for people that might have a barrier, might have a hesitation. Maybe they haven't ridden a bike in years and let's get them into the sport and welcome them and and not worry so much about what kind of bike they're on. Totally agree. Just want to see the clarification when it comes to specific trail networks. And that's something that we're dealing with here in the Gunnison Valley, right? So I think we just need to, we meaning like the world of mountain bikers, like, you know, nationally, again, this is less of an issue in Europe currently, but like, I just want that kind of clarification, make sure we're cool. We're not, we're not, you know, we're all on the same page, but I'm, I'm with you in terms of the inclusivity and accessibility part of this. You said it well, Jonathan, we believe in local land management and you have to designate where people can go and where they can't and work on user, user issues. So you, there's user conflict on busy trails. There's a lot of trails that don't actually have a lot of people. And so the, the local land management agencies know what's best. And I remember when we first years ago started working with the national park service, just on even mountain bike access, I had so many superintendents say to me, I have this huge park and no one goes to 99% of it. And there's a lot of service roads. There's single track back there. Wouldn't it be great if people could see more of our public lands? And so we think, you know, an e-bike might be able to, to sort of bridge that gap, but um, it's just, it's a really exciting time and local land management is absolutely where it has to be. Well, so Jen, tell us how can people get involved? How should they get involved? Let's, let's talk about that aspect of this. Sure. If you want to welcome new people into this sport, that is the number one way we would love for you to get involved. We have this new app called RideSpot, and we designed it to reduce barriers for cycling. And we know the number one reason people don't ride a bike is they don't know where to go that's safe and fun. Or maybe they have that one route and they can't sort of figure out the next route. So we studied sort of the barriers to cycling for a couple of years, and we put it into an app. It's free. It's basically like Instagram meets Google Maps. So you could go out on your favorite lunch ride, record it on RideSpot, put a bunch of pictures in there, maybe say, you know, um, this is a great place to get water, or this is where, you know, I stop with the kids to, for a bathroom break, or watch out for this gnarly downhill. You reduce barriers for cycling when people can see the terrain, they can see people that look like them riding it, they can be welcomed into the sport versus making them jump through all these hoops. So the, Number one way we'd love for people to help us 
welcome all these new cyclists and keep them on their bikes is jumping on ride spot and sh- promoting the places that you ride every single one of those rides you can post on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter and sort of keeping the momentum going by showing specific great places to ride in your community. I'd say the second one would be, we have a brand new advocacy Academy. It's it's a masterclass video series of about 10 videos. We'll put out 10 new videos every year. And it really sort of breaks down how to be a bike advocate and how to get better bicycling in your community. It's probably a little bit more focused on road cycling and um, city and town bike networks than it would be mountain biking. But it's this class that will take you through super short snippets of how to be a bike advocate, how to get your city to be more bike friendly. That would be number two. Anything else we should know before I let you get back to, you know, changing the world of biking? Just that we're so grateful. I mean, so many new people are into cycling. Let's keep them riding. Let's welcome them. Let's make sure that all these new diverse riders feel part of the party that uh, we have. We've really bolstered our ambassador program in the last 11 months to be able to have ambassadors from BIPOC communities, from LGBTQ, all shapes and sizes, women, veterans, you name it. We need to do everything we can as a cycling community to welcome new audiences into the sport. And you, I don't have to tell you, Jonathan, how it's been a traditionally sort of white, traditionally sort of male sport. And it's exciting when we look at our data from all these new people trying cycling, there's more black Americans, there's more Latinx, more Asian people are finding joy on two wheels and getting out of the house, getting that brand new bike and just absolutely loving it. And I think it's our job as current riders and in the bike industry to welcome them, to show them all the fun they can have, to reduce barriers for them and keep them on their bikes. So um, I just appreciate the opportunity to talk about it and try to get more people riding and supporting all these new riders. Very well said, Jen. Hey, thank you. I'm really glad we could connect. And this was fun. I've learned a lot. I'm also still sad that I was not aggressively trying to figure out state legislature when I was a child like you were. So I feel like I'm losing here, but you know, whatever I'm, I'm trying to make up for lost time. All those years of being the nerdy debater paid off because then <laughs> I can be an advocate and a lobbyist for bicycling. And so, uh, it's pretty great to be out to work with this super talented team to lobby for biking every day. So I'm glad you've met your first lobbyist and yeah. we'll be, we're fast friends. And I hope this is the first of a long relationship. Uh, and we can get people out riding bikes and advocating for more of them. Absolutely. Jen, thank you so much. I look forward to the next conversation. Awesome. Thank you, Jonathan. Well, that's it for this edition of Bikes and Big Ideas. Thanks so much to Jen for the interesting conversation. Thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing this episode. And thanks to you for listening. From all of us here in Gunnison and Crested Butte, please take good care of yourself and everybody else. And we will talk to you again tomorrow over on our Gear 30 podcast feed. So see you there.